Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all of the topics you're talking about in football. It is the January Transfer Window, of course. Today is Wednesday's edition of the Transfer Window podcast, which means, of course, it's your questions answered. But, as always, top of the show, we've got some news for you. We've been keeping you way ahead of everyone else in terms of Moussa Dembele, the Lyon striker, and the interest of Chelsea in the France uh, International. Um, We told you that uh, Chelsea had a €40 million bid turned down. And also the offer of Olivier Giroud plus cash was also rejected by Lyon. Now, we also know that when uh, the player moved from Celtic, he wanted first-team football and that that might be a sticking point given Tammy Abraham's uh, very much preferred uh, to by Frank Lampard as his starting striker. But Duncan, you have news regarding what is a softening of that position for Moussa Dembele and I think what could be a massive hurdle overcome with regards to the progress of this deal. Yes, look, Moussa Dembele is ready to move to the Premier League. I can tell you that. He were uh, an offer to come in from one of his suitors, and we're not just talking Chelsea here. Moussa Dembele is a player that Manchester United have monitored for a number of years. Manchester United have told representatives of the player that he is one of their on their list, uh, their you know their extensively analysed and, and scouted list that Ed Woodward likes to talk about in interviews these days, and an option for them in January or in the summer. Um, so Dembele is ready to move if an offer is made to Lyon that is acceptable to the French club for his services, and that I think is the fundamental problem here. Lyon don't want to sell in the January window if they can avoid it. They are, however, a selling club. They're a pragmatic club. They will take they'll take a big offer if they feel that they've maximised the valuation on a player whenever it comes. Information I have is that the expectation on Leon's asking price is that it will be above €100 million. Euros. Why? Because when Tottenham came in for Tangi and Dombele in the summer, they were happy to ask initially €100 million euros for that player. And uh, obviously they settled for a considerably lower sum, but still a record transfer fee from Tottenham Hotspur for the player. But their president, Jean-Michel Olas, is prepared to test the um, desire of big English clubs to pay out serious money. And he has the, the, the numbers and the quality um, and the, the kind of almost a, a unique... Um, player in Dembele and this is a player who's happy to play by himself up front he is a traditional number nine in many ways he can play with his back to goal he scores a range of different goals Um, he has played in England already he obviously has played very successfully for Celtic in Scotland in a hard physical league he has played successfully at Champions League level he's gone to Lyon scored uh, 25 goals in 51 league on appearances over his two uh, in his two seasons there and we're only halfway through that second season impressively he's only started 38 of the games of those um, top tier games for Leon. so the scoring record is exceptionally good um, for a player who's had to fight for his place in the team and I'm told he's, he's more than happy to go to Chelsea, for example, where Tammy Abraham has scored heavily for Chelsea this season and is very much in possession of the jersey and do the same thing there. Um, fight for his place, be confident that he can do a better job than Abraham and that he will end up being the first choice striker at some point after that transfer is made or that Frank Lampard would change his formation to accommodate both of them. Uh, in the first 11. Same story with Manchester United. I think with Manchester United, it's it's almost an easier sell because it's so obvious that Manchester United lack a player of Dembele's type. Um, We've talked about it in the podcast from early in the summer that this was going to be a problem with Manchester United this season, that they were banking 
purely on fast players going forward, that they'd allowed um, their different type of striker in Romelu Lukaku, the highest scorer over the previous two seasons, to leave without replacing him properly. And now you see all the Premier League opponents are aware of this and they're aware that Manchester United don't like to play um, uh, deep defences because they don't really have an option to break them down. And United have been looking to change that. They tried to get Erling Haaland. Um, that fell through partly because of their issues with Mino Raiola. Um, they went for a big physical striker who could play with his back to goal, um, a younger uh, player than Dembele, so you could make the argument that there was more potential there. You can also make a counter-argument that Dembele's actually proved it um, in multiple leagues. He's 23, he's still young by uh, most standards. Um, and I think I think he's probably technically better than Haaland. My personal issue with Haaland watching him play is that I'm not sure he's as good with the ball at his feet as you would want to be for a top league. And we'll find out what happens with him at Dortmund and what um, what level he can actually achieve at, at a in a in a more competitive league at a, a higher end club and playing. Um, Champions League football for, for that kind of team where it's not built around them. Um, so there is interest from both of those clubs. The question, I think, is whether either of them will get to the level of fee that Leon will accept in this window. Um, I believe that Frank Lampard is keen on Dembele and pushing Chelsea to do that. Um, the representation um uh, that Dembele has, um, which involves uh, Pini Zahavi, an agent who um, Chelsea have used a lot in recent years to do deals, I think is also um, something which can help this deal happen. Chelsea have a lot of money to spend, um, so the, they could go to a, a very high fee um, to satisfy Leon. I think the question is whether they are ready to do that now um, or whether they wait to the summer uh, in the expectation that they can get Dembele for a lesser fee then taking on the risk that some other clubs come in and uh, and compete for him at that period. I suspect, Duncan, from experience, um, that with uh, Jean-Michel Olas uh, being a very hard bargain uh, maker, he will see the opportunity to start, or indeed the auction has already started, between Manchester United and Chelsea to get a hold of Dembele as a great advantage for him with regards to cashing in on his value. Whereas obviously in the summer you have a much longer period to negotiate these deals and of course other players will become available. Now, another player who we know both Manchester United and Chelsea have scouted is, is Timo Werner, RB Leipzig. Um, again, we've reported this on uh, the transfer window in past weeks that he is a target not just for Manchester United, Chelsea, but Liverpool as well. But RB Leipzig are very keen that he does not leave in the January window. I'm just thinking that perhaps this is playing into Leon's hands, uh, an auction between Chelsea and Manchester United. But an auction, I think, as you rightly point out, uh, could go in Chelsea's favour just because of the influence of Zahavi and the fact that... Uh, Moussa Dembele himself spent many, uh, three of his formative years in West London with Fulham. Uh, we know that he uh, likes London, uh, likes living in uh, that part of the world. That could swing it, I think, as well as, of course, the um, identity of Lampard's side, uh, both being young, um, enervated, and fits in with Dembele's own profile with regards to um, you know, progress and ambition. I think as a sporting project at present, it's it's easy to argue that, that Chelsea is the, the better place to go. I know that Dembele um, likes Manchester United a lot. Um, it's a club that he has been interested in and, uh, and kind of been hoping that United would crystallise an interest in him as a player that's, that's very long-standing. Dembele, because he broke onto the scene with Fulham at such a young age, has been monitored by these top clubs for multiple years. He's been scouted and his progress has been watched. And it's, it's kind of an object lesson in how the, the clubs operate and that the scouts, the recruitment staff get in touch 
with the representatives of these players and, and make them aware that they are interested in him um, and, and kind of build the relationship to, to put the idea in the head and, and say to them, look, be patient. There, there's a time we will move for you if, you're, um, if your progress continues in the way we want it to continue. And Dembele and his representatives are very strategic. I mean, we've talked about this from the very start of the podcast when he was leaving Celtic, when Brighton and Hove Albion tried to bring him to the Premier League. Um, they resisted that move because they felt it wasn't the right club to go to at the time. Uh, it was a January move and there were complications of pressure of coming into a club that was um, trying to retain its Premier League status. And they, they felt he was better than Brighton and Hove Albion. Um, and I think that's been proved because he ended up going to a Champions League club, club and he's ended up scoring um, at a high rate in the French division. One of the other targets has been to get into the French national team. That hasn't happened for him yet. He keeps being called up or pre-called um, for the international squads, but not actually making them to the international squads with Didier Deschamps um, preferring to stick with Olivier Giroud as he's... Um, as his preferred lead striker. Um, Olas, I think, is also aware of that. He, he is also very strategic about this. When he brought Dembele to Lyon, he wanted a player who could score goals for them immediately. But he was also thinking, I can make a big profit on this player down the line um, uh, because the development trajectory is there and the player has the right attitude. Um, if he gets into the France national team and starts scoring goals, that adds value. Um, I know he is he's wanted or liked by big Premier League clubs who've got the budget to do this down the line. You know, it, the, the timing now isn't ideal, but all of this is, is part of a, an expected pattern that both Olas and Dembele entered into when they made that move. Um, what I understand is Manchester United have not made an offer at this stage. So Chelsea are ahead. In, in the process and it may come to a point in this window where United will be tested in that Chelsea will get close to the level or get to the level that uh, Leon are prepared to accept for the player and United are going to have to make a decision do we match that and, uh, and get him now when at the last chance before he moves to another English club or do we forget about him as um, a player that fits into our cultural reboot and um, focus on younger players who can who can improve um, under the management of Willie Gunnar Solskjaer and shift on to another target, um, possibly waiting until the summer to do so. And I think it was interesting after last night's um, not very impressive performance against Manchester City in the League Cup that um, Solskjaer, when asked about Transfers asked about the potential exit of Ashley Young in the, the January window, said um, we can't weaken ourselves, we need to strengthen ourselves in any movement uh, is going to happen. So you know, you've got Solskjaer there who's, who has probably towed the party line in terms of um, not wishing to come into conflict with a, an ownership and with a, a directorship that is has been hugely criticised and justifiably criticised by Manchester United support um, by saying anything that can be, be perceived as negative about them or as putting pressure on them to act in the transfer market or other areas of um, of the running of the club. Kind of putting a putting a, a message out that he feels he has to get stuff done in the window and it, it kind of fits with what one of his you know biggest fans um, in the media, Gary Neville has the line he's been pushing um, in recent weeks that, that Solskjaer has to protect himself and has to demand that, uh, that significant, even more significant money than the, the money that was put into the defence in the summer is spent on the current team to give him a proper chance of succeeding at the club. You know, Solskjaer hasn't gone any way near what Jose Mourinho did in his final summer at the club, but the, you have that message there that I don't want this squad to be weakened. Actually, it needs to be strengthened. Um, will he get what he wants? Will they Will they do it in that window? We may see a decision in this position um, in the next few weeks if Chelsea push as hard as some people expect them to push for Moussa Dembele. 
So my information, Duncan, is that um, Chelsea have a fairly uh, uh, agreed contract um, with, verbally that is, with Dembele and his representatives in terms of the players' wages, bonuses, etc., etc., and that it remains for the club to agree the fee, fee structure and or any add-ons, etc., with uh, Jean-Michel Olas of Lyon. Um, so I think they are ahead in this. But of course, uh, we know that Manchester United need goals. Almost everyone in the Premier League needs to buy goals in January. That seems to be the trend always, um, perennially, every time this window opens, that everyone's looking for a striker. You mentioned about uh, what the strategy is with regards to buying players in January, Duncan. You alluded to it there in the answer at Manchester United. And then Bernie Collier um, has asked uh, an interesting question, which doesn't just apply to Manchester United. He said, can a club that is serious about signing players really still be looking around to making up their mind mid-January? Um, it's a good, I think it's a fair question. Let's face it. Um, the calendar is there for everyone to look at. There's no big surprise that January 1's coming um, and clubs have the opportunity to prepare for this transfer window weeks, months in advance, and yet still we see a lot of dithering, a lot of vacillation, clubs scrambling around with different targets here and there, Duncan. Um, you also made reference to um, the whole uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer myth that, oh, he needs four, five, six transfer windows to uh, rebuild this side, rebuild this squad, etc., etc. And yet we're eight days into a 31-day window and nothing on the horizon for Manchester United, apart from a rejection by Erlen Haaland. Uh, so it does seem like there's a disorganisation at best, and if not, the actual negligence with regards to what they're doing. The listener makes a, a fair point there. I don't think Manchester United are by any means the only Premier League club that uh, makes these kind of mistakes. Um, there are plenty of clubs fishing around the transfer window at the moment, trying to plug holes in their in their team um, and looking at options that are being presented to them by agents um, and, and saying, do we, do we go that way in this window? Um, and a lot of mistakes have been made in the past in the January window. Historically, it's a window where, where big, big errors are made by clubs. You, you look at Fernando Torres transfer, January window transfer, um, one we detailed in the podcast and detailed, I detailed at the time that he, he uh, signed without taking a proper medical and uh, became the, the, the record signing in the, in the Premier League and, and one of the worst signings, I, I think, across world football ever in terms of uh, return on the field to the cost of the transaction. Um, you have another of still one of the biggest transfers of all time. You've got Philippe Coutinho, um, which again happened in January um, and one that Barcelona definitely regret doing now. Um, like all had a, an element of a January transfer window um, mistake to it when it first happened, even though it was in the summer and that it was a reaction to Neymar uh, forcing his way out of Barcelona, Barcelona having a lot of money to spend and running around uh, the transfer market, looking for players they could bring in to placate their their fans for the loss of Neymar and spent a, a huge amount of money on Usman Dembele in that window, um, which has been a failure and tried to do it for Coutinho. Liverpool wouldn't let them, but they uh, allowed that to happen in January and also a failure. So those two deals cost uh, with all the... Uh, provisional payments, which are almost certainly never going to be met, were over £320 million in, in transfer fees alone that, that um, were committed to there and, and two big mistakes. I think Manchester United, you'd have to say, are more culpable here in the sense that their stated position from both Edward Ward uh, from briefings from the club, from Uli Gunnar Solskjaer, from everything that, that goes around the club is that it will take a long time and we need multiple windows to get back to the level where we can compete with Manchester City and Liverpool for the title. Um, and you have Solskjaer last night again talking about how he felt the team 
had done well in the second half and there was a, uh, he, he could take positives from a game in which they were, um, which he said they, were, they did produce their worst performance of the season in the first half. Um, they're, they're looking at this long-term strategy saying they need multiple windows to do it. And I think if you're doing that, then you have to use each window to get players in. They know they need midfielders. They know they need to broaden out their attack. Um, I think they're coming to the realisation that despite having spent um, an enormous amount of money on their first choice defence, so you've got over £200 million of transfer fees on uh, in inverted commas or starting back four, if you still include Luke Shaw in that. And then you've got uh, David De Gea giving a contract which makes him the best paid player in the Premier League in goal. Despite having done that, they, they, they're coming to the realisation they might need to do something extra in, in defence to get to the, uh, the level they need to do. Therefore, you would expect they'd have a target or two lined up for this window, particularly in midfield where they're desperately short, and be ready to take a hit of if the club that uh, owns that player at the moment is asking for uh, additional transfer fee to make it happen in January that they go and pay it uh, and and get the player in and uh, use him to help try and secure Champions League football which would more than earn the extra money spent on recruiting that player back um, their stance over Dembele I think it, it is telling as well and that they're, they're telling the players representatives that he's on a high list of of, uh, of options for that striker position you i don't think you see the best operators in the transfer market when they're setting up deals telling a player he's high on the list they'll tell the player we want you um what do you need to make it happen and let the player and his representatives believe he's top of the list because that facilitates making the deal happen at the moment you've got dembele um seeing that chelsea want to sign him and having Manchester United tell him, well, you're you're close to being our first option. Now that could make a difference if if, it, if United decide to trigger there and decide to go for it. That could make a difference in that um, Dembele's people know he wasn't the first option, and they know um, they had a, a failed attempt to go to Haaland. So there's there's a clear um, naivety about Manchester United's recruitment strategy. It's, it's, it's going from one extreme to the other during the course of Ed Woodward's reign. You've gone from this period of, of picking big, trying to pick, pick superstars um, to improve the, the club on the field and commercially and seeing that fail time and time again and then going to this extremely heavily data-driven model of um, saying that they, they have lists of over 800 players for a position like right back and scouting many of those players multiple times and putting them through computer algorithms and then coming to the decision to to spend what ended up being a record um, transfer fee domestically for a fullback um, to get Aaron Wan-Bissaka um, and, a, and a shift to a policy of going for younger players and, and going um, for primarily British players. And it, it's quite easy to see the mistakes that have been made in all of the different processes that have applied and, and not hard to argue that Maybe part of the error here is that they have people in running these processes um, in Ed Woodward and, and, uh, and his, his senior negotiators who never worked in football before and, uh, and are still learning on the job, um, trying to, to apply a massive budget um, to solve a huge problem that is Manchester United. I think for people looking outside in, Duncan, in terms of Manchester United's uh, way of conducting transfers. Uh, you mentioned before but Edward Wood um, proclaiming their incredible scouting network, their incredible sports analytics team, um, and how forensic they are in researching players before making decisions how to sign them. When it comes to like Moussa Dembele, uh, you know, one of the top scorers in Ligue 1, um, and when you compare that to strikers who are available on the basis that Kylian Mbappe isn't, etc., etc., It's a bit like my mum saying, I like that Leo Messi. I quite like him to, to play in my team. I don't think you need 
you know, 10 sports analysts, <laughs> 45 scouts, and 800 hours of working on a player to suddenly come up with the idea that Dembele might be a good signing. Um, it does all seem a little bit ironic. We'd like to remind you that when you do send questions or want to keep uh, in touch and debate with us, we have several channels and on each platforms of social media. So you can get us on Facebook and Instagram at Transfer Podcast, which of course is the same as a Twitter handle. And also uh, Duncan's on Instagram at Duncan.Castles as well to contact Duncan on that. And of course, uh, I'm at GarboSJ on Twitter. So uh, next Wednesday, of course, we'll come back to answer your questions again. But in the meantime, bear in mind we're on several platforms and get in touch through all of them, one of them, whatever one suits you best. Duncan, we've got, um, I, I'd have to say, a, a very it's almost like an essay. Uh, it's like one of your quick fire uh, answers from uh, <laughs> our friend Rasmus Tvorp-Als, who's talking about Manchester United. And I think it's, it's worth, because after last night's, uh, quite embarrassing first half when United were 3-0 down against City at home. It could have been five. Um, there's been a lot of response to us here at the transfer window about Manchester United, so I think it's fair that we represent that. Now, um, Rasmus has, as I said, effectively given us about 300 words of uh, of critique. I'm just going to pick out a couple of points, though, Duncan. Um, one of them... Uh, is about uh, Jesse Lingard. He said, having Jesse Lingard, for instance, playing as a number 10 role after you have no goals or assists at Manchester United is absolutely ludicrous. How? Stop. Honestly, is that possible? That's a very good point. And then goes on to talk about um, how Manchester United are effectively, he says, um, becoming a joke in terms of not just the way they play, but their recruitment and everything else. Now, to go back just very quickly to the whole, as I said, the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer um, modus operandi of it will take five or six windows. Um, do we honestly think that Manchester United can allow themselves as a club to sleepwalk into this state of crisis that appears to be every second week when they lose a game as badly as they did against Manchester City? Uh, and then somehow they get a jolt of correction by winning a game or drawing a game against a better team. It it just seems madness that you know no one is recognising where the problems are and how they might be solved. Well, look, it is incredible. That is an incredible statistic that Jesse Lingard has not scored or assisted in the Premier League in over a calendar year. And that he is still um, on many occasions for the bigger games, a first choice for Manchester United. Now, there, there, there are lots of factors in there. We know Lingard's had a very difficult time with his, his family. Um, but essentially, Manchester United should have a better option than that. And you, know, you, Ian, told us that in the summer that they made overtures to James Madison. We've seen that progress and that they're, they're still trying to get James Madison to the club. And the um, story you broke on Monday that uh, Leicester City were struggling to get him to sign a new contract amidst that interest, which was confirmed by Brendan Rodgers in his, his press conference the, the following day. Um, interesting, I was looking at the, the CIES um, Football Observatory uh, figures, and they, they have a, a valuation system that they lend out to some um, football clubs as a way of assessing transfer value. And they've placed James Madison as the 12th most valuable player in European football at present um, with a valuation of over 112 million euros. Um, so I, I, I have some skepticism about these valuation algorithms because a lot of them are based on um, age and uh, what uh, nationality. Um, so English players get pushed up in value, but it shows you that they were headed in the right direction in targeting Madison um, in the summer, but um, didn't actually manage to achieve it and I placed it in a position where he will be definitely be more expensive to sign um, in terms of transfer fee and in terms of wages, and they're more likely to face competition from other 
suitors in England for him and he will be in a stronger position to decide what's the best strategy for his career because he's now had two seasons of, of uh, producing exceptional numbers in the Premier League. And um, I think there was a, a statistic out the other day that um, Madison has created 49 chances in the Premier League this season, which is almost twice as much as the most creative of Manchester United's players uh, in the season. So, you know, you, you can understand why they need to, to change there. Duncan, sir, I, I have to interrupt you. You're just one second. 112 million euros, Madison's valued at. Now, given my revelation of my Arsene Wenger moment about James Madison when he was leaving Coventry City, I am now kicking myself with the fact that I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't imply third-party ownership myself when I was leaving Coventry City. He's rather than tell Manchester United about his availability, I should have just invested myself. I'd <laughs> probably not be doing the podcast this Friday had that been the case. Well, yes, or, or banned by FIFA for getting yourself involved in third-party transactions. Oh, there's always ways of covering these, these things up and you know it. <laughs> British Virgin Islands, etc., etc. Indeed, indeed. I prefer um, the Caymans, but yes. Look, they, I think the, the strategy is fundamentally wrong. On top of the execution, the strategy is fundamentally wrong at Manchester United. So you have Solskjaer trying to explain away last night's performance. And you know, Guardiola was intelligent. He um, played without a centre forward. He uh, put mobile players in and around attack to draw or to confuse Manchester United's defenders. And obviously, United didn't have their best, most expensive centre back in Harry Maguire. Um, playing with Phil Jones in that in those circumstances is always going to be difficult, but I'm not sure Harry Maguire would have been any better or significantly better than Phil Jones in those circumstances because the strategy was one which was intended to draw a, a slow uh, centre-back out of position and take um, advantage of the holes that were created. And it worked very effectively. Solskjaer did not have a solution for it in the first half. As you say, it would not have been a surprise if, if Manchester City had been 5-0 up by half-time. If Raheem Sterling had been more um, efficient in the box, they could easily have been 5-0 up at half-time in that match. Um, yet Solskjaer comes out and says... Um, I've said it a few times, but it's not going to change between every press conference, that statement. I'm still in that faith that this is a young team and we are learning. And these experiences must stick and they will stick. Second half gives me at least something to believe in because that's respectable and that's a good second half. So he, he told them that they had to win the second half. They did win the second half and that they got a goal back and they're now in a position where you've got um, people arguing, oh, they managed to come back from 3-1 down against Paris Saint-Germain. Um, they can do this against Manchester City. The counter-argument would be that that comeback against Paris Saint-Germain is possibly the worst thing to happen to Manchester United in that it forced them to give a contract to Solskjaer and, and caused uh, these problems that we have. But this, this general idea about a young team, I've been thinking about it this week, I can't think of another major club that has decided that the, the strategy to succeed at the top level is to concentrate almost exclusively on younger and certainly British players. But let's take that British element out of it, which is going to make it more expensive for you to recruit and you're going to have a question over the quality. But to, to build the team so much around youth and to kind of actively chuck out your experienced players and expect to compete for Premier League, Champions League, to compete in you know, Europa League to qualify for Champions League is a bizarre strategy. Ajax, Ajax, Duncan? Ajax have that philosophy year on year. Ajax are working in Dutch League where the, the standards to win it are lower. And Ajax, actually, if you look at their recent track record, they have struggled to win the Dutch league in several seasons. They've had that spectacular Champions League year where they, they, they got you know a couple of exceptional young talents coming through in De Ligt and uh, Frankie de Jong and, uh, and caught people by surprise. Um, but they're, they're, they are working 
on a completely different basis in that they, they, they know they've got the chance to win the, the Dutch league on a semi-regular basis with that concentration on youth. They know they've got the best academy, probably in European football. They've got a track record for buying players. The only way they compete can compete in the Champions League is to bring players through and sell them and take the revenue from selling them and put that into salaries and recruiting good players uh, quite often from South America, Scandinavia, and, and bringing through the system to sell. So they, they don't have any other option. Uh, they have to work that way. And they have the tools available to allow them to make the best of that in that they produce uh, more quality young players than, than than any other club in Europe and get them into top-level football. Um, Manchester United are... <laughs> they're, they're one of the richest clubs in the world still. They're competing in a, in a far more competitive division against uh, teams like Manchester City who have two exceptional players and very expensive players and bought at the age they want them to be bought, um, tend to be slightly younger, but not as young as Manchester United are targeting, yet younger to suit Guardiola's preference for malleable players and, and the most expensive squad in the history of the game. And Liverpool, who have um, one of the highest wage bills in European football and have built a squad not as deep as Liverpool's, uh, not as deep as Manchester City's, but um, more effective at present. So how, I, I'm not sure how you can expect this strategy to work. I think it, I think it, um, it ticks a lot of boxes because you're saying we're, we're investing in youth and fans like investing in youth. And Manchester United have a history of bringing through young players. But Sir Alex Ferguson never did this. Um, the youngest squad he had was the squad with Beckham and Scholes. And that was because he, he had a, a unique set of talents coming through from the academy who that he could bring through together. But he surrounded them with very experienced, um, high-quality players. And Ferguson was, was extremely astute about bringing players through. He would, he would target games where he could give them um, an opportunity to play, where an opportunity to achieve in the field, build their confidence, gradually turn them into first-team players or turn them into players that he could sell on for a profit to other English clubs because they had that label of being Manchester United products there. He, he didn't throw them all in together. He never said our, our strategy is to, uh, is to be British and young and, uh, and it will take several years to, to get to the, the top of the division. So I think there's a fundamental problem with the way Manchester United have set themselves up and this this cultural reboot that they've that they're selling to the fans um, they, they were never booted up in that way in the first place this is this is a new structure that Woodward and Solskjaer have have brought up I think primarily as a well cynically I would say primarily as a PR exercise but even if they believe it I think they're misguided in believing that this can work for them and interesting as well Duncan um with Ferguson, uh, it was about bringing players through the Manchester United Academy, which, of course, um, in the shape of Mason Greenwood uh, and a couple of others, I guess, Chong um, as well, uh, there has been an introduction of academy players. But if you look at James, uh, Harry Maguire and Aaron Wan-Bissaka, purchases last summer, which totaled around uh, £145 million, um, it's not cheap. <laughs> buying young English talent and putting it in to the team. So uh, again, it, it, it's as you said, there's a there's a definitely a, a flaw here in terms of um, this strategy, if that's what you want to call it, because um, there are no guarantees that's going to um, achieve success. And indeed, it's failing to achieve success, even failing to achieve consistency at this moment in time. One player who's been absolutely the um, subject of interest around the country with regards to a move in this window is Chelsea striker Olivier Giroud, um, wanted both by Newcastle and by Aston Villa. Uh, our um, listener, the Debanis, has asked us about uh, the interest from St James's Park in particular. I can confirm that Newcastle United have made an official inquiry and asked a price for Giroud, which they've been quoted at around £8 million, although that may well go down depending um, 
on Giroud's availability, i.e. Uh, should Chelsea manage to recruit a striker to replace him. Um, it's certainly the case with Andy Carroll injured and with Steve Bruce struggling uh, to find even uh, 11 players, never mind 18, to put on the pitch next weekend with regards to his injuries, etc., etc., that Giroud would be a short-term fix. Out of contract, of course, at Stamford Bridge in the summer, therefore uh, ripe for a move and would not be very expensive. Uh, we told you in the podcast that uh, he was offered to Leon part exchange uh, with Mr Dembele, uh, both the player and the uh, Leon turned that down. Aston Villa have their own problems uh, with injuries as well. Again, looking for a target man. Uh, Giroud is someone who they would like to take. And of course, John Terry, the assistant manager, um, knows Giroud and would, I think, make a good case for him to go to Aston Villa for the rest of the season. Um, Duncan, Giroud's kind of bucking the trend a bit here, isn't he? Because um, big target men who <laughs> get on the end of crosses aren't really exactly um, flavour of the month, uh, never mind in the Premier League, but anywhere in football. Well, I think um, I think there's someone across London who'd be quite happy to get a big target man who gets on the end of crosses or can lead the line, um, at least for the next six weeks while Harry Kane is injured. Um, and uh, you know, the, there are other clubs that can do with that that uh, option. Giroud's interesting because he's only started two matches for Chelsea this season. He's clearly um, not someone Frank Lampard sees as a as a starting player for obvious reasons. Um, and with Chelsea trying to sign Moussa Dembele, the the writings on the wall for him in in terms of any long term. Uh, status at Chelsea, he has to play football. He remains um, Didier Deschamps' first choice for the France national team. Um, Deschamps sees him as an integral part of the the team that won the World Cup and he's been challenged on Giroud's continued selection when he's not playing for Chelsea and he says, um, look look at his scoring rate for France and, and tell me how many players have scored at a higher rate than him. Um, he's earned his trust. And, uh, and for Deschamps, I think he's pushing Giroud very hard to get himself a team for the second half of the season and to get playing time and to make it uh, easier for Deschamps to keep picking him in that squad and keep him part of his team. And I, I think it's clever management from Deschamps. If you've got a, a, a system that is proven to work for you, um, why change it? Um, because a, a player isn't getting time at his club side. I think Internazionale are also interested in Giroud and that um, Antonio Conte sees him as a as a backup option to Romelu Lukaku, who's been scoring at uh, a very high rate, I think a predictably high rate, since moving to Serie A and, uh, and helping Inter go to the top of that division. Um, I wonder whether Giroud would pick that option of being a backup when he needs playing time and um, and therefore a club like Newcastle have a better chance of recruiting him because they can say to him we will put you in the team um, Andy Carroll's injured again Joe Linton hasn't been uh, hasn't delivered in terms of goals for Steve Bruce so come to us you get playing time and when you sign Giroud you, fi- you sign an intelligent footballer doesn't have a, a great deal of pace. He's never had a great deal of pace, but he knows where to be in the box and he knows how to score goals from different positions. And he knows how to lead the line. So you're getting a, a proven product there. Another club, I'm told, who have made him an offer and are interested are Bordeaux in France. And again, you would look at that as being guaranteed playing time for Giroud. Um, whether they can afford to meet Chelsea's demands for the player uh, is another matter and we know that Chelsea tend to in these situations uh, milk the, the, the desire of a player to leave um, for the best transfer fee that they can get. You know, they, they have to work the market carefully, they've got that big loan army that they, they try and make as much money from, from sales. Um, so if they, when they see Giroud in this situation needing to get games not being particularly important for them, um, I think they'll try and exploit it for a transfer fee. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's, that's where you're going to get a determination and where Giroud ends up 
in this window. And just to finish off the uh, Wednesday podcast, Duncan, uh, I think we should mention a rather intriguing tale, and that of Wilfred Zaha at Crystal Palace, a player who was linked with many a club in the summer window in 2019, um, who made his intentions clear about wanting to leave Selhurst Park for a bigger challenge, uh, most um, predominantly Champions League football. Um, he has since seems to have had a disagreement with his original agent, the agent he has is currently has a representation contract with, and indeed has now signed up to the overused phrase super agent, Pini Zahavi, although in terms of if anyone's going to be a super agent, then Pini's the man will be pulling off his shirt with uh, S.A. Uh, blazoned on his satin superhero uh, outfit. <laughs> Although seeing Pini in red pants outside his trousers is not something I'd prefer to have as an image in my mind. Um, what do you make of that in terms of... Um, I mean, it's been portrayed, Duncan, as uh, Zaha uh, demonstrates his ambition to move to a bigger club by employing... Uh, said super agent is that the way you see it or is it just simply a case of a player who feels that he's not playing at the level he should be simply wants to try and find a way out I think there's there's a lot of elements to this um, my understanding of the, the situation is that uh, yes Zaha wants to be at a bigger club he sees this as, as his last opportunity really um, to play for trophies and to get himself to a Champions League side and feels that his quality of performance at Crystal Palace merits that. Um, he also wants a bigger salary uh, and the, the numbers that are being floated around are £200,000 a week as, a, as an asking price. He has a brother, I'm told, who is very influential in this process and... Um, that's where the mandating of various agents, it's not just Pini Zahavi has been involved here. Um, there's also a mandate being handed out to Italian agents to try and move him to Serie A. The information I have is that Zaha was offered around Serie A clubs by those agents and there were no takers um, because the, the pricing is really high. So uh, Crystal Palace, I'm told, will look for 90 million. They do, do not want to sell. Um, Steve Parrish had to work very hard to retain Zaha in the club in the summer. Um, his relationship with Zaha suffered. Zaha was not happy that Parrish didn't allow him to uh, leave for a lower fee when Everton and uh, Arsenal were pushing uh, to try and sign him. Um, but Parrish knows that Zaha is very important to the way Crystal Palace are set up and uh, and and. It, I think is, is scared that if he loses the player, um, there's a potential that Palace could lose the Premier League status either this season or next season. And um, and that would, would cost far uh, more to him than, than, uh, uh, than the benefit of uh, the transfer fee he could raise. So it's a complex situation. And... I think the difficulty for Zaha is his age. He, he will, he'll turn 28 this year is such that it has to happen quickly. It is a very expensive deal. He's a, a, a maverick player who suits the way Palace are set up with that sort of defensive organisational setup that Roy Hodgson has perfected and is very good at implementing and makes them difficult to beat. And you, you can leave a player like Zaha with the freedom to uh, run, create and score goals. But if you take Zaha and put him into the Chelsea team, yes, you probably score more goals if you put him in every week because there'll be more opportunities for him. But how much does he add to Chelsea? Um, how much does he add to a side like Bayern Munich where he's been offered um, to by Zahavi? Um, is, is he really a player who goes into one of the top clubs in European football and... Help, works within the system to make that team better on a regular basis or is he someone that you have on the bench for difficult situations and would he be happy being on the bench in difficult situations rather than being the, the main man at Crystal Palace uh, which has suited him so, so he def definitely wants to move the people around him definitely see lots of money to be made um, but 
crystal polyps are extremely resistant and the price is very high. So I think this is complicated and I'd be very surprised if he gets his move in January and I'll be interested to see how it develops through the summer. Crystal Palace are one of the more intriguing clubs in this window, Duncan, because um, usually you find managers playing cards close to their chest. Uh, they don't want to uh, give away um, the positions that they need to strengthen in, uh, how much money they've got, etc., etc. But Roy Hodgson has been very public in saying these two strikers um, he needs central midfield uh, to be strengthened. He needs defensive strengthening as well. Seems like an awful lot of players in an awkward window to uh, negotiate such deals. I mean, as we've seen, about 75% on average of deals done in the January window in the last 10 years have been loan deals uh, rather than purchases. And yet, um, Crystal Palace do not appear to be cash rich. This is a club who effectively mortgaged the second payment of the R1 Basaka fee in uh, November of last year to the Australian investment fund bank Macquarie. So they basically borrowed £22.5 million with a low interest rate return from Macquarie on the basis they would have money in the bank to spend in the January window. Now, despite the fact there's been investment uh, from American investors, et cetera, et cetera, they were preparing themselves, obviously, to um, at least be able to uh, put down deposits, if you like, and also obviously make initial payments to clubs or make loan deal payments with regards to recruiting in this window. And I think it's a big ask to look for uh, and say this is coming directly from the manager, four or five players in the January window. Um, yes, they have problems with injuries. Uh, they've also had problems with the drop in form, etc. as well. But still, um, it's very ambitious, I think, to believe that you can sort of, you know, effectively rectify all the problems of the first five and a half months of the season in one window. The Pulse have got an eight-point cushion at present. and They're as high as ninth in the table, but it's a very compressed middle table, as we know. Um, and they're looking down at some teams that are, are gathering form. Um, they have a history of, of buying in January. They have a history of, of, um, of spending lots of money, particularly on wages, in January to, to keep themselves in, in the Premier League. So you, you can maybe see where Hodgson is coming from in that regard. And you, you, you get these battles between managers and owners um, and the, the manager will push to get as much as he can in any given window um, when he feels there's leverage to, to force the owner to do something. And, and obviously the biggest leverage is Premier League survival. And um, when you get to the January window, it becomes... The, the optimism of early season has often evaporated and something needs to be done quickly. They, they, they have an expensive wage bill because of the way that recruitment has gone for them down the years. Um, got quite a high uh, age structure in their squad. They, there are other problems with the club in terms of the stadium needs upgrading, the, the training ground needs upgrading. Um, Steve Parrish desperate to get more money into the club, would love to have a an investor um, come in and uh, and bankroll um, some of the the major uh, capital projects that are required at the football club, and and there's the potential uh, of the club being sold in in total. And I think all of these things we started talking about Wilfred Zaha. All of these things feed into Zaha's position at the club because it's not it's not an ordinary club where they can afford to let their um, such a key player go. Uh, knowing they'll be all right in the Premier League and then strategically reinvesting the money uh, to to sort out their squad. Um, it's quite difficult for them to do it. And you wonder whether the outcome to all of this might just be that Parish offers Zaha the money he wants at another club to stay there and be the centrepiece and and uh, and be the anchor around the club and you know make make him whole financially and, and get this this issue of him and the people around him pushing for a, a transfer off the scene um, to allow better performance on the field because his numbers have dropped this season on what he was providing last season and it, it's not hard to to think that 
part of that is because of the frustration of not being allowed to leave in the summer. That would be um, quite embarrassing for uh, Zaha himself, of course, having publicly stated that his desire to leave was based on footballing ambition rather than money. But let's face it, it wouldn't be the first time that we've seen that in football. And speaking of things we've all missed over the holiday period, of course, the donkeys. It's award season after all. The Golden Globes have caused controversy already. The BAFTAs are on the horizon. And of course, the Oscars themselves are upon us soon enough. Uh, it has been the case, of course, that many of you have been on holiday. And of course, the Wednesday podcast uh, has not been uh, with you because uh, of the holidays over Christmas Day and New Year's Day. But I'm delighted to say, in response to many, many people asking where or where or where are our donkeys, then they are back. Back today, back with Dr. Duncan Castles, of course, here to deliver his verdict on uh, this week's nominations. And today we were inspired by a man I think we can pretty much say uh, and describe as an eternal optimist. He, of course, is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Manchester United manager, who, after seeing his team lose 3-1 at home in the EFL Cup semi-final, in the same press conference, said that it was the worst performance of his team this season. But also, you could take some positives from it. So, uh, it has to be said that that is, you know, something which we need to address with regards to the Donkey Award for being eternal optimist. Uh, and here are the nominations. The Ole Gunnar Sonchar Award for Eternal Optimism in Football. Just going to open the golden envelope here, people. I know this is something you haven't heard for a while. You're all very excited. There we go. Okay. So, oh, some very good ones here, Duncan. I'm sure you'll enjoy uh, picking a winner out of these ones. So we have Ed Woodward for Believing and being eternally optimistic that he actually knows something about football. Explain. <laughs> Sam Alardicio, our good friend, who will no doubt be firing up the Granada heading for Spain as we speak, uh, believing he will still at some point manage Real Madrid. And, and this is my personal favourite because it's probably the more realistic of the eternal optimists. Liverpool fans for the last 30 years for believing they will win the title. Duncan, I hand over to you. You have to credit your your, your good friend Big Sam for his his confidence and his uh, ability to make these pronouncements. That his career was um, sadly diminished by the refusal to hire him simply because he was English, as opposed to uh, the way he organised himself as a football manager in comparison to uh, the the very high quality options that were. Uh, available in Europe and came into the English game at that time and you know saying you should be Real Madrid manager you don't get more um, uh, blindly optimistic than that but I think Sam's had a few of these and um, we don't want to give him too much self-aware so to be fair maybe maybe Duncan he was thinking that a pint of wine in Spain is much much cheaper than it is in the UK could be that could have been his thinking um And and getting Florentino Perez to buy the wine for him was obviously, uh, uh, you know, that high quality Spanish wine in a pint glass. um, It's all you could ask for if you're Big Sam. (laughs) Ed Woodward, uh, yes, strong candidate. Um, What can I say that we haven't said in the podcast? I think he's he's got at least three on his mantelpiece already um, in his plush office of uh, Mayfair. Manchester United HQ, which of course is in London and not Manchester. Which is close to the number of times he's had Manchester United qualify for the Champions League, isn't it, under his uh, stewardship? Um, but I think I think we have to reward the Liverpool fans here for their eternal optimism because it has been their year um, for most of those um, 30 years uh, since uh, they last won the English title, never won the Premier League title. And um, clearly, it had, that optimism has been rewarded. That faith in their side has been rewarded, um, and it is going to be their year. So let's let's um, let's say well done 
for um, some of the most faithful fans in football and their uh, commitment to see Liverpool back on their perch, uh, lording it over the rest of English football. And um, a question for all of us is how long is it going to last? Because they are they're very well placed at the moment. Indeed. I look forward to seeing the uh, donkey golden uh, statue being passed around the cop at the next home game. Um, I'm sure Duncan will all be kissing your forehead uh, as it's passed around. That's all for your questions answered on Wednesday's Transfer Window podcast. But as you well know, we love to continue the debate after the pod and indeed before the next one on Friday. So please get in touch on our social media channels at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Duncan.Castles on uh, Instagram as well at Duncan Castles on Twitter at GarbleSJ on Twitter to contact us individually if you like what you've heard. And we know, of course, that thousands of you do. Help us along to make the community grow and that's get onto iTunes, give us a five-star review and, of course, that means that the whole thing becomes much more interesting. And and how could it be more interesting than it is already? Well, that will help. Um, We will see you on Friday to the transfer window. As for now, thanks for listening. (laughs) 